Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, we want to look this morning at living in reality from verses 13 to 17 with the Lord's help. Peter writes this, and I love how he does it. He starts with a question, which is always a good way to start a conversation because it pricks the conscience and it gets to a part of the soul that is not always approachable by direct proposition. And so Peter begins with this question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense of everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Lord, help us now to understand your word. Spirit of God, interpret, illumine, convict, encourage, Strengthened and heal us in our soul as we hear from you this morning. So teach us what we do not know, what we do not have. We ask that you would give us so that we might become what we are not yet. And that is more like the Lord Jesus Christ, having heard his word this morning. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, as we think about it more and more, I know so many of you have expressed this in one way or another, that the realization that standing for Christ in real terms and in real ways is beginning to cost us as believers, as followers of Jesus, it is beginning to cost us more and more. Day by day, it is becoming very apparent to us what many have known throughout the history of the church and That is this, that to follow Jesus in a real way, in a tangible way, in a faithful way, is going to cost you something. That the people who received Peter's letter in the first century certainly understand that reality. And that reality is this, that we live, brothers and sisters, in a world that does not tolerate biblical Christianity. It may tolerate cultural Christianity, but it will not tolerate biblical Christianity. And the consequences of biblical Christianity are increasingly real for us today. Just as they were for Peter's audience in his day. And so I pray that God will encourage and strengthen us, even though the reality is that the the storm clouds are no longer just on the horizon, but they are beginning to build overhead. That we along with them who originally heard this, will not be moved, that we will live in the true reality of a biblical faith, a biblical Christ, a biblical reality. But let's be honest. The world and our world, which is what we know, has always been at odds with biblical Christianity. They just haven't been as vocal or enforced their dislike of biblical Christianity. But the world has always been at odds with the gospel. It has always been at odds with God. But if you ask yourself this question, really, isn't it strange? Just in 12 months, how quickly things have changed. Have you asked yourself this question? What makes it hard for us to talk about those things? What makes it hard for us to think about those things? What is it that makes us want to revert back to thinking that is not reality and is not normal? A way of thinking that surely biblical Christianity is not meant to endure this kind of thing. There's got to be a better way or a way out of this. What what makes us think like that? The real question is, why do we think it should be different? 
So what we're thinking is, why, why would we think that? This week is the Passion Week. It's the week before Resurrection Sunday as we celebrated it. They crucified our Lord, you remember. Why would it be different for us? And why are we tempted to fear in this time in which we live? We all ask the questions. We all struggle with the questions. We all wrestle with the questions. But because of those thoughts and because of those fears and because those questions are real, we need to address those this morning. And what we need to realize is that what God is doing in passages like this and by the reality that we live in, he is continuing to separate us from this world and prepare us for eternity with him. And if that is the case, and if we believe, really believe what we say we believe, that God is faithful and God is good, then there is no place for fear. Because God is working out something far better far more of a reality than this short life. It's not reality to say that this, what we experience today, is abnormal. That's not reality. The reality is that this is normal in a fallen world. A fallen world who hates God. And this is not, we must remember, what God, in His infinite wisdom, created in the beginning. Everything we see is a result of sin and rebellion against him. And because it is rebellion against God, be encouraged, Christian. This won't last. God will not tolerate it forever. And so this isn't reality. What is reality is the hope that Peter speaks of for us. So don't be afraid to ask the hard questions about life today. Don't be afraid to stand for Christ today. Whatever they can do to us, the worst that they can imagine to do to us, is not the ultimate and final reality. Jesus Christ and eternity with him is our final reality. So take heart and take hope. Peter, with this section, now enters into the third and final section of his book. If we were to divide that book up, A section that will focus on us developing a thought process. We need to develop this thought process for suffering. I'm glad God prepares us for that. And he prepares us for suffering through the reminder of Christ's suffering so that our our minds are placed into thinking realistically and rationally in this world as biblical Christians. Brothers and sisters... We have something. We know something. We know something that the world does not know. We have something that the world can never have apart from Christ. So advantage Christian. Not advantage world. Advantage to us. We have the leg up. We have reality in its truest sense. And God in his grace gives us this section in the book of Peter to prepare our hearts for that reality and living in that reality. Some people say, well, that's discouraging to talk about suffering. We as Christians shouldn't think about suffering. Then you can't think because life in a fallen world is full of suffering. That's why half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. That's reality. And God is gracious enough to prepare us for that. You think about the military at least the military as it used to be. And they prepared men. They hardened men. They put them through suffering. They talked about suffering. They made their lives absolutely miserable in boot camp. And for those who went on to even more uh, stringent uh, assignments such as special forces, their life got even worse after boot camp. Why? Was that cruel? No, that was kindness. Because when they got into the battle and when they got into situations that seemed impossible, they were not rattled. They knew what suffering was. They'd been given the tools, the advantages to face reality as it is and to deal with it. God is doing the same for us. It's not cruel to talk about this suffering. It's gracious. 
He's preparing us. And so let's look at these preparations from Peter this morning. There's a question that we need to ask before we begin. And the very asking of the question is helpful in preparing you and preparing me because it is a squeeze of your coach's hands upon your face. How many of you have ever had a mentor, a coach, a teacher, a parent that at some moment of your disarray and some moment of confusion and some moment of, uh, you know, they're afraid you're about to throw in the towel and quit and they grab you by the face and they say, listen to me, listen to me, look at me, look at me here. And that's what Peter is doing. He's grabbing us by the face and he is saying, look at me. Who is there to harm you? Who's really going to do something to you? Who are you afraid of? Be like Paul, Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. Who is there to hurt you in that reality? To put it more bluntly, what are you afraid of in living your Christian life right now? What scares you? What causes you to think, maybe I should go hide? Maybe I should be quiet? Right now, what is that? Is it losing your job? That's a reality. Is it going to jail? That's becoming an increasing reality. Is it being canceled? Is it losing societal privilege? What scares you? And what Peter is doing in light of that question is he's taking us by the face to get our attention, to bring us out of our moment of panic. And he's saying, who is there to really harm you? Think about this. Think about this. We want to believe and have even experienced that the more we are zealous for good, we won't encounter opposition. In fact, the world might actually love us because of our good. If we we appear so good and so righteous and we do everything the right way, the world's going to love us. Peter is quick to include a conditional clause here in the text. And this is what he says. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Yeah, that's right, Peter. We're good. We're we're, we're peaceful people, Peter. And then he goes straight into verse 14. But even if a conditional clause that says says this is, uh, hey guys, this is actually possible. A little stronger than that. Probable. You know, even if, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, for that goodness. So what? That's not reality, not ultimate reality. It may be a temporal reality, but it's not ultimate reality. After all, we're told, aren't we, today that as Christians, the the more good we do, the more tolerant we are, the more inclusive we are of the culture around us, the more the world will love and shower us with approbation. Nothing could be further from the truth for biblical Christianity. Because there comes a time and there will come a point where we either have to choose. It's literally come down to we have given all the ground we can give. And we will come to a point, Christian, hear me, where it will literally be deny Christ or please the world. You will have given all the ground that you can possibly give. And it will literally be a matter of heaven or hell at that moment. And it does not matter how much you accommodated woke culture, tolerant culture in your life, all of those things. If you confess Christ is Lord, all the goodness you have done will end when your truth pricks their conscience. All the United Way participation, all the philanthropy, all the 
all the bowing to gender neutral terminology, all the giving in and giving out and thinking that we are making a friend of the world, Peter says, uh, <clears throat> even your goodness is going to become a problem. Because your goodness must ultimately be about truth. Your goodness, caring about someone, loving their eternal soul enough to tell them, if you do not repent and come to Christ, you will die in your sins. You will experience eternal separation from God in hell. Come to Christ today. Is anything more good to say than that? No. That is the most kind and loving thing we can tell anyone. And yet that goodness will be hated. It is hated. We see it, don't we? They saw it in Peter's day. We see it in our day. And so, man, what an appropriate text. Who said the Bible wasn't relevant? This is for us. Depravity can so twist the mind that even our goodness and our good news is hated. And all the things that we can do to to try to mitigate that from a human level It won't help because we must say the truth about what man is and who Christ is and the only way to life in Christ. So Peter says it is possible that you will suffer harm because of your goodness or your righteousness. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, notice that it's not because we've done evil. It's because we've done what is right in the sight of God. You will suffer. That's possible. I would say it's even probable. We see it. And Peter says, even if that is the truth, who is there really to harm you? Hey, Christian, who can really harm you? Who can really harm you? Well, I guess that depends on how you define harm. Real harm goes beyond temporal circumstances, goes beyond this world, and touches the soul. It touches the very existence of the soul. You see, the world can't touch our soul. The world cannot have our eternity. Christ owns that. We have been sealed by the omnipotent, sovereign spirit for eternal life. They can't have that. And if that is the greatest reality... What's there to fear? Who can really harm that? Peter uses the term harm 12 times in this short letter. 12 times. He talks about being harmed. That's more than any other New Testament writer. Peter's preparing them. Peter's saying, listen, there's a preparation for what is possible and even probable. They can't touch you. They don't have jurisdiction over you. That's where we as the church of Jesus Christ, redeemed by his blood, saved from our sins, guaranteed an eternal inheritance in heaven, waiting for us with the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we are joint heirs. This world has no jurisdiction over us. We can smile and say, sorry, we're meeting. Sorry, I'm worshiping. Sorry, I'm witnessing. You don't have the right to dictate that part of my life. God only does. I'm secure in him. Whatever then they can do to us is a limited reality. Which isn't reality at all. It's simply the holding pattern for the true reality. We're just, uh, we're just circling. We're just going down a path. As I said to the kids in my theology class, we're just one little dash between two sets of numbers. That's all this is. We've got a greater reality to come. Our real reality is eternal life in the presence of God, enjoying the full victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and the grave forever. That's our reality. Peter recalls the very word of Jesus in the next thought. Notice what he says. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. See, Peter's preaching from an inspired text that he had heard earlier. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed, ah, Peter borrowed a word, 
are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you realize, brother and sister, that Jesus gave that master sermon on the mount when he talked about those beatitudes, that the idea of suffering and persecution for the sake of righteousness, which Peter has picked up here as his theme, that is the only virtue, the only quality that receives an extended treatment and two blessings. Jesus doesn't pronounce blessed, blessed on any of the others, but he does on suffering for righteousness. Blessed are you. Blessed are those. Why? Jesus knows the reality of our human condition is that we are fearful and anxious people. I know I am. And I know that I need the word of God to strengthen me and to inform me so that those weaknesses are overcome. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? So you're going to suffer and in your suffering, count that as a blessing. In fact, rejoice in it and be glad over it, Jesus says. Really, Jesus? Rejoice in suffering? Be glad about it? I don't know, that, that, that's awfully difficult. Happy? Well, it depends on what matters to you. Let me say this as kindly as I can. If making it through life with the least amount of resistance and the least amount of scars is how you define blessing, then it absolutely makes no sense. In fact, that kind of speech is offensive. That's what turns people off. If your view of life and your view of success is making it through life with the least amount of scars and the least amount of resistance and the least amount of opposition, that is offensive language. How dare Jesus infringe upon our sense of self-preservation. How dare Jesus infringe upon our ease and temporal happiness. How dare the Bible talk about something that doesn't make me feel good. How dare my right to the dreams for my life be Muddied and clouded by this idea that to follow Jesus would involve suffering. That's uh, the words of Jesus. You're not contending with me. We're, we're all contending with the word of God over that. But, Christian, if Christ being formed in you and you being made more like Jesus is the measure of success in life, is the goal of your life, if the Holy Spirit producing in you a bumper crop of fruit, if that is what matters most, then we can say, yes, Peter, you are right. We are blessed. Yes, Jesus, you are right. We are blessed. If the righteousness of Christ in us is so formed that the world persecutes us because of that, we're blessed. Because look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Look at what that righteousness produces. It's a glorious thing. If there is such righteousness that it identifies you with Jesus who suffered and died in your place, if it identifies you with his prophets, scars and all, if it identifies you with the martyrs who have stood for Christ, then true believer, it is worth it all. And we can say blessed with the writers of Scripture. It's really amazing. This week as I was looking at this passage 
and reading the commentators, which, by the way, can be quite discouraging. Some commentators actually try to minimize the reality of suffering in this passage, and it's like, how are you doing that? It is what it is. How are you going to try to say, well, Peter didn't really. No, Peter did really. They said, well, it's possible that Peter is just essentially covering all the bases because it isn't reality as much as it is a possibility. Let me tell you something. That is soft Christianity that comes out of the prosperity gospel and an eschatology that says God never intended his people to go through anything difficult. We will always get out of trouble. After all, we are the Western and American church. It's not what Peter says. We're not escapist in our hermeneutic. We need to endure. We need to not buy into the prosperity gospel thinking, but rather the biblical gospel. And this is what Peter says. If for the sake of the righteousness that comes from Christ is formed in you, you are blessed. Jesus thought this way in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Oh, Lord, we do need peace, don't we, in our own lives? In Jesus, we have peace. But notice what he goes on to say, in the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I'm not out looking for suffering. I'm not out looking for problems. No one enjoys that. But brothers and sisters, we must be honest with the text of Scripture and not anathematize suffering for righteousness sake. And that seems to be what our churches are doing today. We have anathematized suffering and emphasized blessing to the point where we say if we suffer for doing what is right, then surely we're the ones in the wrong. Because after all, we are good people. We have been kind people. We have loved our neighbor. There cannot be any suffering for us. Oh, no, 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 no. Not necessarily true. Why should we not avoid suffering? Why should we not? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that is where the power of Christ is shown. Not in the good times, not in the easy times, but in the hard times. Could it be, and we need to ask ourselves this question, could it be that the church does not see the power of God upon her because we have never suffered in such a way that we really understand what it means for Jesus to be Christus Victor, Christ the victorious one? You don't really understand that until you see him triumph over his enemies. And so whatever the case, Peter prepares his readers for the very real possibility that they will suffer. Yes, they will even suffer more specifically because of their righteousness. Worldly, cultural Christianity will not suffer. But biblical, Christ-following Christianity will. And when they do, they are to consider it a blessing, not a curse. Now, notice... Peter prepares us for our response to that reality. He says in the middle of verse 14, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He begins with two prohibitions. Number one, he says, do not let them intimidate you. In other words, literally translated, do not fear their fear. Do not let their fear that they are trying to cram down your throat make you fearful, Christian. And isn't that what we see? Isn't that what cancel culture and Christianity looks like? Shh! Because if you don't, we'll do this. Or there'll be this price to pay. Peter says, don't fear their fear. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear their attempts to try to create fear in you. Rather, resist that. Don't be unsettled because of them. In fact, be encouraged. Do not fear their fear. 
And don't be troubled at it. The word troubled literally has to do with an imbalanced mind, an unsettled mind, one who can't do anything else because they're so frazzled and rattled. Peter says, don't give an ounce of thought to their intimidation and don't allow their intimidation to rattle your mind. Hey, brothers and sisters, can I, can I give you a bit of good news? God did not intend for Christians to be fearful people. You, you realize what fear does? Fear is a horrible thing. Look at the world around you today. I'm not, I'm, just step outside of the, of the theological realm for a moment. Look what fear has done to our world. It's an ugly sight, isn't it? It has literally changed the psychology of the human mind. People have lost their ability to think clearly about common sense things. Why? Fear. It warps us. And so Peter says, it's got no place in the Christian life. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, some translate it fear, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Join me in suffering, Paul says, because there is no fear in suffering for the gospel. There's a greater reality for us. We know that. Therefore, we are not deterred by anything else. So Peter says, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be rattled in your mind. God gave you the power of a sound mind. And where is Paul saying that from? Prison. With the executioner's block just days away for Paul. He's not saying that on a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean on a mission trip. He's saying that from a Roman dungeon. Who a few verses later will say, the time has now come and I'm ready to be offered. Hey, Timothy, join me. Because even though I'm in prison, even though I'm about to die for Christ, there is no fear. God has not created you for that. But of power and of love and a disciplined mind, how do we do that? Here's the exhortation beginning in verse 15. How, do you, how does a Christian live like that? Here it is. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What's your plan, Christian? What's your plan? Did you buy into the world's philosophy that at 12 o'clock a.m. on January 1st of 2021... 2020 is gone. 2021, New Year, good things are coming, man. Because that, you know, 2020 is gone now. What is time? What's your plan? Because obviously 2021 is already throwing some surprises at us in the first quarter. It hasn't gotten better. It's not gotten easier. Not for the gospel. What's your plan? It's no longer hypothetical. You need a plan. It's, you know, the little ads that come on the radio. You need at least two to three days of food, a meeting place, way to contact your family. Have a preparedness plan. What's your spiritual preparedness plan? What is it? It's no longer hypothetical. And there's an answer that comes and here it is. Peter says, sanctify Christ. Now, the word sanctified means to set something apart. We can't make Jesus more holy. He's God. But we can set him apart in our life. We can, we can sanctify him in the way that we think. We can set him above all things else. We can set him above as sovereign and king and one who is worthy of our worship of life. By the way, don't relegate worship to Sunday morning between 1030 and 11 or 12. Worship is how we live. It is all of life. 
So we sanctify Christ. We set him up as Lord of everything, as worthy of worship in all things. The supremacy of Christ in reality. Peter says that is your plan. That's your preparedness plan. Set him apart as Lord and Lord over all. Hey, brothers and sisters, don't say Jesus is Lord unless you're really in your thinking making him Lord. To where he alone matters. He alone is supreme and sufficient. He is the the one who occupies all of your preoccupation. Are you preoccupied with the Lordship of Christ? Are, are you preoccupied? Do you look at everything in life and go, Jesus is Lord over that? Well, how can I demonstrate that reality more in my life? Peter says, if you want to get out of the fear, sanctify, lift Christ to the place of preoccupation. That is our, isn't that strange? Peter doesn't go, go sharpen your sword. He doesn't say, go hide. He says, sanctify, set Christ apart. Set him up as Lord. For the Christian, our battle is not primarily a physical one. It is a spiritual one. Now, Jesus did say, you got to protect yourself, right? We're not throwing common sense out the window. We're thinking people. But the first thing we must do in preparing our mind is Make Christ Lord, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, worthy, set apart. So what does this produce? Keep the context. Okay, keep the context. Look at verse 15. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, that the deepest seat of our emotions and our thinking. And notice it yields this conclusion. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In the face of all threats, in the face of the world attempting to induce fear in us, to intimidate us, to persecute us with Christ as your set-apart cornerstone, the object of your hope. Immovable, sufficient as he is. You have a hope. Peter says, look at Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. And in so doing, you will be ready. Always being ready. This is what prepares you. He's not saying go out and get ready. What he's saying is, if you have sanctified Christ, you will be ready. This makes you always ready, having Christ in the proper place in your life, in your mind, in your thinking, produces hope. Now, notice what he says. He says, give an account of the hope that is within you. Now, how many of us have looked at this verse, I'll be the first to plead guilty, And have said this is the command and the uh, pretext for us to engage in apologetics and defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How many of you have looked at this verse? Be honest. That's not what it says. He He doesn't say, sanctify Christ in your heart, being always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the facts about your faith. That's not what he says. He says, give a reason for the hope that is within you. When they are arresting you, when they are mocking you, when they are firing you, tell them why you're smiling. Tell them why you're not in a panic. Because Christ is Lord. Because Christ is sovereign. Because Christ is over all. Too many times, too many times I fear we look at this and say, man, we've got to generate answers as to why we believe what we believe. And we do. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for that. But that's not what Peter's getting at. here. What Peter is getting at is there ought to be a hope that supersedes 
precedes fear, and you need to be ready to tell them why you have hope. Be ready to explain that. With a mind that is fixed on Christ, the beauties that we see in him are the defense of our hope. We, we tell people that Christ is this and Christ is that, and therefore I don't fear, I have hope. We point them to him. And so that our defense of the Christian faith is uniquely centered in Christ. It's Christological. It's not based on presuppositional apologetics or other forms of apologetics. It's on Christ. That's the source of our hope. The command is to set Christ apart, to extol him and to place him at the highest place. Not simply to develop academic answers. When Christ is set apart, he is also set above. We must always be ready to give a hope for, or or an answer for that hope. Why? Why? Because there is a threat greater than the ones that they're leveling at us. Do you agree? There's a threat that is greater than what they can do to us. There is a fear which should be feared. It's not theirs, but it is one that is coming in the judgment of God. Your fear is temporary. But there is a fear that all men must fear, and that is the fear of God in judgment. And as we set Christ apart, as we lift him up, as we sanctify him, he has removed that greatest threat of the judgment of God against us. He has relieved us, as the hymn says, from our fears and sins. You realize sin is the greatest reason for genuine fear. Legitimate fear. Our sin that invokes the judgment of God. And we, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, because of his place in our lives, and because we are in him, we have hope. They don't. But they need that hope. And through our testimony, then Peter says, be ready to tell them about the hope, why there is a greater fear than what they're threatening you with and why they're still under it and how they can come to have this same hope. Have you noticed the world is pretty hopeless? Have you noticed that? You notice how sad the world is? It's really sad. It's truly heartbreaking. People need hope. The only hope is Christ and so Peter says, listen, that's your, give, be ready to give an answer for the hope. As Nathaniel Williams said in light of this, we are never unprepared, never unwilling, and never timid to point out that hope that is Christ. Hebert says, that, 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 that points out that it is the hope, not the faith, which we are called to defend and explain. Hey, so how many of you watched any one of the number of interviews that Erin Coates did while her husband James was in jail for the last five weeks. Many. She was everywhere. You know what I never heard Erin do? Defend her husband's doctrinal statement. You know what I did hear her do? Give a hope that she had in Jesus. Over and over and over again. Hey, I love theology. I love doctrine. I'll defend it with my dying breath. But that's not the point here. The point here is that there is legitimate practical things coming against Christians. And when we are centered in Christ, when our, we have sanctified Christ, we have a hope that we can share. And it's really not us who are in trouble, even though we may be the ones that look like we're in trouble. It's the ones persecuting us who are in trouble. And we need to share the hope with them so that they get out of ultimate trouble. That's the real reality. Peter says, be ready to do that. Notice that our mannerism is to be one of humble speaking. He says, do so, do so with gentleness. That's that same word that that means thinking of ourselves less, not self-important. Do it with reverence, do it with submission and humility, not not boasting, not braggadocious, not, 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 not a bull in it. Listen, Christian, there is no place for a bull in a china shop in God's kingdom. 
It's unseemly. It's unbecoming. It doesn't defend the truth. It doesn't defend the hope. Notice what Martin Luther said. And if anybody ought to say it ought to be Luther, right? The guy never had an unarticulated thought and was a absolute, sometimes fleshly, boisterous individual. But he says this. Then you must not answer with proud words and bring out the matter with a defiance and with violence, as if you would tear up trees with, with such fear and lowliness as if you stood before God's tribunal. So must thou stand in fear, not worldly fear, but the fear of God, and not rest on thine own strength, but on the word and the promise of Christ. We can give an account for the hope with a whisper. We don't have to scream and be belligerent. We can do it peacefully and with joy and with a smile on our face, with humility that doesn't make much of us, but makes much of Christ. And we're to do so with a good conscience. Notice how Peter wraps this up. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience. Nothing more valuable in the Christian life than a good conscience. Nothing more practical value for us than a good conscience that allows us to rest and to be at peace. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, what are we being slandered for? Goodness and righteousness. Go back to verse 13 and 14. In the thing in which you are being slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Their mouths will be shut. Why? Your life doesn't give any evidence for what they're accused of. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. There's a way for Christians to suffer wrongly. To be belligerent. To be prickly. To provoke to try to be controversial. Listen, our message is controversial enough. Our manner does not need to help in provoking people. We can be bold. We can be honest. We can be straightforward. But we can be kind. We can be humble. We can be selfless and just truthful. We have a message of the cross, a message of an empty tomb, A message of a reigning king. All we need to do is proclaim it. We're not going to further it by human strength. We'll not vindicate ourselves by stooping outside of the testimony of Christ. Acting worldly, acting fleshly, acting according to fear. For that reason, Peter says, you must maintain the reason by which you are accused, and that is goodness and righteousness. Why? Because it reflects Jesus. Why? Because it reflects the source of our hope, the righteousness that is in Christ and in Christ alone. The slander and harm we incur will be to their shame. You say, yeah, but nobody is judging the people that are murdering the Christians in Myanmar this morning. Well, maybe the news isn't, But we haven't heard the final verdict from God. We haven't heard the one whose opinion really matters weigh in on the subject. Yeah, but people are doing terrible things to Christians and no one's doing anything about it. And no one's seeing it any differently. We haven't heard the final reality, brothers and sisters. It's not over yet. Yeah, we may appear to be losing for the moment, but Jesus has won forever, and He is our final reality. That is living with true reality in mind. The other stuff's just temporal, and it's going to go away. And all that will be left is God, and He will render the final verdict. The slander and harm we heard will actually be the slander and harm they intend for Christ. And may I say, I pronounce to you that on the authority of an empty tomb, Christ is the victorious King. They will never shame Him. They will never harm Him. They will never do away with Him. 
He will be gloriously manifest to the whole world. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Christian, do not fear their fear. Sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. Hope in Him. Stand ready to tell people about the hope that is within you. This, for us, is living in true reality. Father, we are so grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus. It does not mean that there is not suffering, that there are not battles with fear. It doesn't mean any of that. But we know that we have a cure. And so, Father, help us to stay focused upon the cure, to set Christ apart as Lord, Christus Victor, over all things in our life, to view him as sovereign over the world, knowing that we've not heard the final word from you, and that when we do, Jesus wins. Therefore, all in him win regardless of what the temporary circumstances look like, they are not the final reality. Let us live in the hope of a final reality in which you, Christ, are greater. You are greatest. You are Lord. We can say that this morning because there is from which you emerged after three days, having satisfied the wrath of God, paid the penalty for our sin, been justified and vindicated as Savior for all who will place their hope in you. As we come to your table this morning, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would cause us to fellowship with you in our hearts around those great themes. We pray this in your name.